Hello and welcome to the October 4th, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to give you a quick summary of the new articles you'll find if you go to annals.org. First is the report of a cohort study of adults undergoing colonoscopy after a positive fecal immunochemical test that suggests that endoscopists performing colonoscopy in FIT-based screening programs should aim for markedly higher adenoma detection rates than those assumed to be optimal in programs that use colonoscopy as the primary screening intervention. Screening reduces colorectal cancer incidence and mortality by early detection and removal of colorectal cancers and polyps. One of the quality indicators for colonoscopies is the adenoma detection rate the proportion of colonoscopies in which at least one adenoma is detected. Higher adenoma detection rate has been associated with lower risk of diagnosis of colorectal cancer following screening colonoscopy. And many professional societies recommend endoscopists have an adenoma detection rate of at least 25%. FIT-based screening programs have become common worldwide. Patients with a positive FIT are expected to have a high prevalence of adenomas on subsequent colonoscopy. So endoscopists performing colonoscopies in a setting that uses FIT-based screening should also have higher adenoma detection rates. However, it has been unknown whether the association between the adenoma detection rate and post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer is also present in colonoscopies performed after a positive FIT result. Researchers from Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam conducted a population-based cohort study of 362 endoscopists who performed 116,360 colonoscopies with a median adenoma detection rate of 67%. In 426 patients diagnosed with colorectal cancer after colonoscopy, 49% were classified as interval cancer and 51% were classified as a non-interval cancer. They report that for an endoscopist with an adenoma detection rate of 60%, the cumulative incidence of interval colorectal cancer for colonoscopies performed in response to positive FIT was almost two times higher than that of endoscopists with an adenoma detection rate of 70%. This risk was even higher for endoscopists with adenoma detection rates less than 60%, with the expected number of patients diagnosed with interval colorectal cancer in five years being approximately two for endoscopists with an adenoma detection rate of 70%, compared with almost 3.5 for adenoma detection rates of 60%, and more than 4.5 for adenoma detection rates of 55%. According to the authors, their findings support the use of different adenoma targets as quality indicators for endoscopists in FIT-based versus primary colonoscopy-based screening programs. Staying with the topic of cancer screening, next is a review of 33 organ-specific cancer screening guidelines that found inconsistent reporting of harms related to screening tests and procedures. Cancer screening should only be recommended when the balance between harms and benefits is favorable. Yet cancer screening research and guidelines have historically focused on the benefits rather than harms of screening tests and procedures. However, cancer screening can result in pain or discomfort, worry, iatrogenic complications, distress from abnormal results, a cascade of additional tests and procedures accompanied by their own set of harms, and patient costs. The authors of this review looked at 33 guidelines for five organ-specific cancer types. They evaluated the guidelines using a taxonomy of screening harms and found the guidelines did not report all harms for any specific organ type or for any category of harm across organ types. They report that harms reporting was the most complete for prostate cancer screening and the least complete for colorectal cancer screening. 
The inconsistent and incomplete reporting of harms identifies opportunities to improve harms research and reporting, including providing reliable quantitative estimates, measuring and reporting the cumulative risk for harms over multiple rounds of screening, and quantifying the denominator of persons entering each step of the screening process to understand how screening harms accrue. The authors recommend that clinical guidelines consider nuances associated with each organ-specific process to screen for cancer, including which harms are most salient and where evidence gaps exist, and explicitly explore how to optimally weigh available evidence in determining net screening benefit. They suggest improved harms reporting could aid informed decision-making, ultimately improving cancer screening delivery. The next article addresses questions related to the benefits and harms of pregnant persons with inflammatory bowel disease continuing anti-tumor necrosis factor treatment after 24 weeks of pregnancy. In just North America and Europe alone, more than 6 million live with inflammatory bowel disease, and affected persons include women of childbearing age who are at higher risk than pregnant persons without inflammatory bowel disease for premature birth, low birth weight, and cesarean section. Anti-TNF is commonly prescribed during pregnancy, but European guidelines advise clinicians to consider stopping it around 24 weeks of pregnancy in patients with sustained inflammatory bowel disease remission. The authors of this article analyzed data from 5,293 pregnancies in persons with inflammatory bowel disease treated with anti-TNF treatments. Anti-TNF treatment was discontinued before 24 weeks for 2,890 participants and continued beyond 24 weeks for 2,403. The authors found that continuation of anti-TNF was associated with decreased frequencies of maternal inflammatory bowel disease relapse and infant prematurity. The authors also report no difference between groups concerning stillbirth, small weight for gestational age births, or serious infection in offspring. They note that discontinuation of anti-TNF treatment was associated with increased inflammatory bowel disease activity and consequently with an increased rate of preterm birth. According to the authors, these results provide strong evidence supporting the recommendation of maintaining anti-TNF throughout pregnancy in women with inflammatory bowel disease. The next article I want to highlight reports a cross-sectional study of more than 70,000 Asian Americans that found that when considering body mass index associated with the risk of metabolic and cardiovascular disease, the prevalence of obesity in Asian American subgroups varies substantially and should be defined by different BMI thresholds than in other populations. Researchers from Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention analyzed self-reported height, weight, and demographic data for more than 2.8 million adults who participated in the 2013 to 2020 Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System Survey to quantify obesity prevalence in Asian American subgroups based on standard BMI standards and those tailored to Asian populations. 30 kilograms per meter squared compared to 27.5 kilograms per meter squared. Based on the standard threshold, Asian Americans as a combined demographic group had an 11.7% obesity prevalence compared to 39.7% and 29.4% obesity prevalence in black and in white adults, respectively. However, using a combined Asian American cohort and standard BMI thresholds masked significant variance among subgroups and under-recognized obesity among Asian American adults. By calculating obesity prevalence in a combined Asian American cohort using the modified BMI threshold, 
the prevalence of obesity was 22.4%, with the range from 13.2% in Chinese Americans to 28.7% in Filipino Americans. Identifying and addressing the Asian subgroup-specific factors that contribute to high obesity prevalence and differences in obesity prevalence among subgroups is necessary to mitigate the potential lifetime consequences of overweight and obesity. An accompanying editorial by Annals Deputy Editor Christina Wee argues that these findings highlight the limits of BMI as an indirect measure for body fat because correlations between BMI and adiposity vary substantially across populations and are influenced by factors such as age, sex, and ethnicity. She highlights that this study also adds new complexity to existing research indicating that Asian Americans meet criteria for obesity at lower BMI thresholds than white Americans. She adds that while some guidelines have begun to acknowledge the influence of race and ethnicity on overweight and obesity thresholds, guidelines provide little guidance specific to Asian American populations. She notes that because clinicians and payers look to guidelines to guide practice and reimbursement for weight loss interventions, the lack of recommendations specific to patients of Asian descent puts them at risk for a delayed treatment. Next is the cost-effectiveness analysis of sodium glucose co-transporter 2, or SGLT2 inhibitors, and glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1 receptor agonists, that concluded that the use of these medications as first-line treatment for type 2 diabetes would improve outcomes somewhat, but their costs would need to decrease by at least 70% to be cost-effective. Type 2 diabetes affects more than 30 million Americans and costs $327 billion annually, up from $174 billion in 2007. The cost increase is partially attributed to the increased use of SGLT2 and GLP-1 medications, which have been demonstrated to reduce atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease microvascular disease, and mortality, in addition to improvements in glycolated hemoglobin and cardiovascular risk factors. These medications have been recommended for second-line therapy in both American and European guidelines, but may be a prohibitively expensive treatment option for some payers. Researchers from the University of Chicago Department of Medicine created an individual patient-level model to simulate the lifetime incidence, prevalence, mortality, and cost associated with having type 2 diabetes. They created several treatment strategies, including the first-line use of metformin and second-line use of SGLT2 or GLP-1 medications, the first-line use of SGLT2 medications, and the first-line use of GLP-1 medications. After conducting analyses, the authors found that first-line SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists had lower lifetime rates of congestive heart failure, ischemic heart disease, myocardial infarction, and stroke compared with metformin. However, they also found that given the magnitude of the benefits, the cost for SGLT2 inhibitors would need to be reduced by 70% and by 90% for oral GLP-1 receptor agonists to be cost-effective compared to metformin. According to the authors, their study results indicate the need to reduce the cost of these medications substantially for patients with type 2 diabetes to improve health outcomes and prevent exacerbating diabetes health disparities. The first gender-affirming surgery clinic was opened in 1966 at Johns Hopkins Hospital. A New History of Medicine article chronicles the events that led to its closure. The creation of this clinic was accompanied by general academic interest and prompted the creation of other academic center-based gender-affirming surgery clinics across the country. 
The author of the article presents an argument for how the disclosure of the first gender-affirming surgery clinic was not based on empirical data about the effectiveness and safety of the care provided, but rather was manipulated to fuel political and institutional agendas. An analysis of archival documents demonstrates the shifting priorities and biases of the clinic's leadership years before its closure, citing repeated public and private transphobic statements from both the clinic's founding surgeon and the Johns Hopkins chief of psychiatry. The author also notes that during the same period, plastic surgery achieved several significant medical milestones, including the first kidney transplant and the appointment of a plastic surgeon as Surgeon General in 1969. Archival documents speculate that the clinic's closure was related to political and social pressures to distance plastic surgery and the institution more broadly from an increasingly controversial medical procedure. An accompanying editorial reiterates the importance of including transgender and gender diverse persons in every step and every level in the design, planning, implementation, expansion, and sustainment of clinical services, training curricula, research studies, and policy agendas of gender-affirming care. The authors also call on physicians to name and denounce institutional or governmental efforts to reduce access to gender-affirming care, or for welcoming and inclusive environments to transgender and gender-diverse patients, and request that healthcare systems enforce non-discrimination policies that are explicit about gender identity and expression. I'm going to close this podcast by encouraging you to go to annals.org to read the most recent On Being a Doctor. Dr. Kathleen Julian writes a very moving essay about obtaining patient consent to participate in clinical trials. That's all for this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will go to annals.org to delve into some of the new articles I've mentioned. And please return November 1st to the next Annals podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.